You know, there are some things that are hard to get across. Some, I guess, I guess they're concepts that they're hard to get across. And um, I guess I've never been been accused of sticking with the simple stuff. But um, you know, this one for me, it, it's kind of more of a feeling. It's kind of more of an attitude than it is a concept. But I want to see if I can get it across because more and more, and the older I get, the more it becomes kind of a defining principle in terms of, of how I live and, and, and how I relate to, to life and work and, and uh, of course, people and everything else. And so I wanted to see if I could get this across. It, it's just so important. I'm calling it an Ecclesiastes state of mind. A little, little nod there to, uh, to the song. But, um, you know, I was talking to, uh, we were having our Wednesday night study and uh, I always ask at the beginning if there's any questions, comments, rebuttals, concerns. And uh, one man pops his hand, hand up and says, I have a question. You know, I just want to know why we're here. <laughs> now, once I qualified that he didn't mean here in this room, but here in the universe and life. And I was thinking, oh, good, an easy one to start off the night with, you know. But, you know, it's. This is one of the two most ancient questions that human beings can ask. You know, who am I and why am I here? And without answers to those two questions, life is always going to be lived sort of randomly, kind of as a crapshoot. Oh, now I see why all the attention was going that way. Babies just take it. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> Bye, Eliana. That is terrific. Where was I? Oh, yeah, two questions. You know, and he he was sincere. He wasn't he wasn't playing with us. He was sincere. He he was he's just getting started in in he has no religious or theological background, and so he's really trying to dig in. Why are we here? And so we talked about it for a while, and we came to uh, you know sort of a consensus that we're here to connect. We're here to learn to value oneness, unity. We're here to value relationship. We're here to learn how to love. You know, you can say it a whole bunch of different ways. We're here to learn how to reflect the deepest values of God our Father, the, the, the initiator, the first cause, the creator of everything. When we are reflecting that, when his values are our values, his delight and pleasure is ours, we've learned what it is that we're here to, to learn. And I suppose in some way, this world, this universe, the way it's, it's set up, is the perfect proving ground, the perfect testing ground for that to be able to be accomplished. And even having said that, even believing it right down to my socks as much as I do, it's just words. It means exactly whatever it means to you as I was saying it. You may agree, you may disagree, I don't know. But even if you do agree, the bigger question is, what does that look like in your life if you believe that the reason you're here is to connect? is to practice oneness and unity in everything that you do. What does that look like? What choices do you make? How does it change things? How does it change your attitudes? And I can tell you that for most of my life, I thought I was here to accomplish things. I thought I was here to do things. I thought I was here to build things, to write things, you know, to, to create some sort of a product that was important to the world, that could help people, change lives. I mean, even when I had the best of intentions, I was still trying to accomplish something and do something, and my life reflected that. 
all the work, all the business, all the obsession with projects and things that I was doing. And so as I get older and I'm starting to look at life in a different way, what does that look like? You know, if you think about it, the contemplative way is all about gearing us in a new direction. It's about taking us away from doing and accomplishing into being and relationship. That's what it's designed to do. And so all of this talk about the contemplative way has bringing, hopefully has been bringing us to a point at which we start to see life differently. We start to value life differently. We look at things from a different perspective. And I think possibly the second half of this is just getting older. You know, those of you who are old enough to have a few more decades under your belt, is there something about just having the panorama, the sweep of seeing enough life that changes things? To watch children grow up, and my daughter is getting married in in two weeks, and, and watch them have children and then grandchildren, watching movie stars get old and drop off the other side. And, you know, the, the, just having that sweep, that, that perspective, also starts to change things from within and from without. And if you really think about it, especially from this, this new perspective of mine, everything happens within one generation. Have you ever thought of it that way? Whatever we accomplish, whatever we build, whatever we do, is gone within one generation. Who we are, who we are known personally, it's gone within a generation. The people that we connect with, the people that we imprint with, they remember us. But then the next generation, where is it? It's it's this interesting phenomenon. Every generation, every baby born, is like born with washed memory. There's a couple of movies about this where a person wakes up every morning and they can't remember anything. They can only remember one, you know, one day's span. And then they have to learn everything all over again. It's kind of like that. Every baby is born as a blank slate. They have to learn everything within that time period. And then we can lose it in the next generation. There's a quote that I put up here on your, on your bulletins. And it's by Thomas Sowell. Each new generation is born. Each new generation born is in effect an invasion of civilization by little barbarians who must be civilized before it's too late. <laughs> I just love that. I mean, that's so true. It's so true. Why did the Jews spend so much time? Why were they so strict? Why were they so fastidious about teaching the children? Because they knew if their culture was to be preserved, it had to be assiduously taught to the youngsters. Because in one generation, it's gone. It's gone. You think about what's happening in this country right now. The newest generations are not being taught the same culture of Older generations. Now you can say that's for better or for worse. It doesn't really matter. The, the, the point is, it's different. Our culture is changing because we're not teaching our children the culture that we necessarily grew up with. And, te- and, and schools and media are teaching different things to, to our children as well. And so our culture is changing within a generation. Now it'll take the older generation to die off before it really takes hold, but it's coming. And yet the Jews, for three to 4,000 years, have kept a discernible, definable culture intact because of their teaching methods. 
Everything happens within the generation. Think about Ancestry.com. Have any of you gone up on Ancestry.com to look up your, your ancestors? A few of them, I'm seeing some nods of the head. You know, it's so interesting. I've never done it, but the concept of it, you know, to go on there and look up ancestors, which just two generations out, you have no idea. Maybe one generation out, you don't know who they are. Their names, it's interesting. You see the little lines that connect them to you, but you have no idea who they are. It's, it's so different to think about life this way. Everything I am, within a generation out, will be forgotten. You say, well, no, that's not true. There's historical figures that we remember from time immemorial. Yeah, that's, that's true. But who is it that we're really remembering? Is it the person who actually lived and breathed and loved and died? Or is it the legend about that person, the stories about that person? Is it what was convenient for the group to remember about that person, what the group needed to remember about that person, rather than the person themselves? Well, writers live on, don't they? Absolutely. But what is it that's actually living on? Is it the writer or the writing? You know? One of those magnificent novels written from my perspective is Moby Dick, you know? written a hundred and a half years ago. Do I know anything about Herman Melville? Only know him through the pages. You know, call me Ishmael. You know, I know that. But who is he? Movie stars, they live on in a special way, but who's, what's living on? Is it the person or is it just an image on screen? So really, what we are, who we are, just is right here right now. And this is something that I think we don't give a love, enough thought to. We don't think about it enough. I wanted to read a little section from the movie called Troy. I don't know if some of you saw it. It's about the Trojan War. And uh, as the whole Greek army is getting ready to head off to Troy, Achilles, who was half god and half man, is talking to his mother on the shore. And he's trying to decide whether to leave or not. And she says this to him. If you stay in Larissa, that's his home, you will find peace. You will find a wonderful woman, and you will have sons and daughters who will have children, and they'll all love you and remember your name. But when your children are dead, and their children after them, your name will be forgotten. If you go to Troy, glory will be yours. They will write stories about your victories for thousands of years, and the world will remember your name. But if you go to Troy, you will never come back. For your glory walks hand in hand with your doom, and I shall never see you again. <sighs> kind of an interesting concept. Now Achilles was remembered because Achilles went to Troy. He made that choice. He made the choice to go to war. He made the choice for glory. He made the choice to rem be remembered perhaps for as long as there is Western civilization. And Homer is remembered for writing that story. But the question is, did he make the right choice? Did he make the right choice? What he gave up was family, connection, peace, the love of children and grandchildren. But he got a name that was remembered to this day. See, it seems so much that this is the choice that we're all making every single day as we walk through the details of our lives. What are we choosing to do? 
Are we choosing for some outcome out there? Are we choosing to build something that we hope will what, give us some sort of status, head and shoulders above others, a name that will be remembered? Some feeling of accomplishment? Or are we just choosing to connect with those that are left and right beside us as we go through life? It's dramatic when it comes to Achilles. It's subtle in our lives, but it's no less real. Think about your attitude to life. Think about the things that you choose. This is what we're trying to get at here. Did he make the right choice? Is accomplishment that lives beyond our generation more important than what is happening within our generation, within our time here? I wanted to read a little bit from Ecclesiastes, of course, because that's my state of mind right now. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with this book, it's part of the wisdom literature of, of ancient Israel. And it's purported to be written by Solomon. Solomon was King David's son. He was the second king of a unified Israel. And he is reported to have been the wealthiest, the grandest, and the most wise of all the monarchs of his era, of all the monarchs of his area, but certainly of all the monarchs of Israel. And at the end of his life, with all his accomplishments around him, as he's taking a survey, as he's looking at things, through the lens of that wisdom that he prayed for and was granted by God, he writes this book that is called Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is just the Latin transliteration of the Greek translation of (laughs) Koheleth, Koheleth is the uh, Hebrew word, and it really it means gathering, you know, is what it means. I should say it means gatherer, you know. Ecclesia in Greek is a gathering. We we uh, translate it as church, okay. Ecclesiastes would be the gatherer. Koheleth is the gatherer, or we would say teacher or preacher. And in different translations, it sometimes will be translated as Koheleth, just not translated at all, or to be teacher or preacher. But here, the words of the teacher, I'm reading here, and what's in your bulletin is from the NIV. Up there on the, on the screens is probably New American Standard, but to kind of read through the translations wherever you're looking at. The words of the teacher, Koheleth, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, he says this, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. <laughs> Great beginning for a book, right? The word he's using there is Havel, in in, uh, Hebrew. And it literally means vain. And vain means worthless. It's futile. Or it can literally mean mere breath. Something that's just mere breath. It has no substance. It can also mean it's of no purpose, it's of no profit. But he's looking at life and he's saying, it's Havel. It's mere breath. It has no purpose. It has no profit. In verse 3, what do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. 
Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new? It was here already, long ago. It was here before our time. No one remembers the people of old. And even those who yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, look, I have increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. But I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. Sounds pretty morose, doesn't it? (laughs) Pretty defeatist. Kind of brutal, you know. But he's going somewhere with this. And if we get lost in this, if we turn off because of what this sounds like before we get to where the point is, we're going to miss something extremely important about living our lives. At the end of this long life of accomplishment, in every measurable aspect of life, Solomon He comes and he has tried everything to find out why he was here. That's really the question he's asking. What does it profit? Why are we here? Why do we work? Why do we toil? Why do we do these things? Chapter after chapter, he goes through and he counts all of the things that he has tried. You know, first there is pleasure. He talks about pleasure about all of the food and the great food and the concubines and the wives and everything. And eventually he got to the point where it just was Havel. It was meaningless. He talks about his great works, the buildings. He is the builder of the first temple, the great temple of Solomon. Other great public works and parks and gardens. Eventually, Havel, futile. He talks about the wealth that he has accumulated, all the acquisitions He was the greatest king of his era and his time in terms of everything that he had brought into his country. Havel, meaningless. Finally, he goes after wisdom. And it's not that he sees no value in wisdom. It's better to be wise than not to be wise. But eventually what he sees is is that the same end comes to everybody. Whether you're wise or whether you're foolish, Everybody dies. Everybody comes to the same end. Whether you're rich or whether you're poor, whether you're happy or whether you're sad, the same end befalls everybody. Everybody dies the same death. Not only that, he looks at life under the sun and he sees that sometimes the evil ones are rewarded. Doesn't that just make you crazy when that happens? They aren't brought to account. There is no justice And sometimes the good are punished. The good are the ones who suffer. And there's no fairness. There's no justice. And so all these things that he has tried to do, to be wise, to be just, to be this, to be that, does any of it matter? He is coming to the end of all of this and saying his wisdom has shown him it's all Havel. It doesn't matter. Now before we get too far into this morose kind of idea. I want to read you something else. This comes from a book that came out 15, 16 years ago. 
by John Eldridge called Wild at Heart. And some of you may have read it. And it was written to men, but it really applies to everybody. You know? And then he, his wife did a book that was written to women on the same sort of idea, trying to get men and women to experience and express and to you know, be all that they're supposed to be in this life. But listen to what he writes. Several years ago, I was thumbing through the introduction of a book when I ran across a sentence that changed my life. The author, Gil Biley, shared a piece of advice given to him some years back by a spiritual mentor, Howard Thurman. Here's the quote. Don't ask yourself what the world needs. Ask yourself what makes you come alive and go do that. Because what the world needs is people who have come alive. I was struck dumb, he writes. Suddenly my life up till that point made sense in a sickening sort of way. I realized I was living a script written for me by someone else. All my life I had been asking the world to tell me what to do with myself. Now this is different from seeking counsel or advice. What I wanted was freedom from responsibility and especially freedom from risk. I wanted someone else to tell me who to be. Thank God it didn't work. The scripts they handed me, I simply could not bring myself to play for very long. As Buchner says, we are in constant danger of being not actors in the drama of our lives, but reactors. To go where the world takes us, to drift with whatever current happens to be running the strongest. Reading the counsel Thurman gave to Biley, I knew that God was speaking to me. I set the book down without turning another page and walked out of that bookstore to find a life worth living. Now, the next section, he's talking about what actually happened in his life. He decided to go back to graduate school. Against all odds, he had no way to pay for it. He was a father of three. He really wasn't making any money. And he got this great job offer on the East Coast that would have paid for everything and been this plum job, you know, and, and it would have killed his spirit and his soul. He knew that, but it was such a good deal, you know. What do you do? What do you do? He got... And he didn't know how he was going to pay for the school anyway. And then he gets a phone call and someone offers to pay for him. And he says that experience in grad school not only changed his life, but the lives of many others. Because he became a writer and a lecturer and a counselor that he is and has been for the last decade and a half. And he accomplished all these things. Then he writes, most men spend the energy of their lives trying to eliminate risk or squeezing it down to a more manageable size. If it works, uh, if a man succeeds in securing his life against all risk, he'll wind up in a cocoon of self-protection and wonder all the while why he's suffocating. If it doesn't work, he curses God and redoubles his efforts and his blood pressure. When you look at the structure of the false self men tend to create, it always revolves around two themes. Seizing upon some sort of competence and rejecting anything that cannot be controlled. This is not endemic to men. As David White says, the price of our vitality is the sum of all our fears. White talks about the difference between the false self's desire to have power over experience, to control all events and consequences, and the soul's wish to have power through experience, no matter what that might be. If you had permission to do what you really want to do, what would you do? Don't ask how. That will cut your desire off at the knees. How is never the right question. How is a faithless question. It means unless I can see my way clearly, I won't believe it. I won't venture forth. What is written in your heart? What makes you come alive? 
If you could do what you always wanted to do, what would it be? You see, a man or a woman's calling is written on his or her true heart, and he discovers it when he enters the frontier of his deep desires. To paraphrase Thurman's advice to Gil Biley, don't ask yourself what the world needs. Ask yourself what makes you come alive, because what the world needs are men and women who have come alive. Now, we like that much better, don't we, than Ecclesiastes? It sounds a lot more palatable, a lot more inspiring, you know. And, of course, this is written by a man who's only 41 years old at the time, and also a man who had gone through a transformation that brought him success, brought him accomplishment in life. So he's looking back and he's giving us this advice, he's giving us this outlook through the lens of that accomplishment. Now, that doesn't mean it's wrong, but it's good to put things in context. He's a young man, 41 years old, in the flush of building a new career, as opposed to Solomon at the end of his life, 80s plus, having gone through and experienced the entire curve of what that life feels like and sounding quite different. But really, are they so different? Because even though it sounds like Eldridge is just talking about accomplishment, it's not just that. There's something deeper there. What makes you come alive is what he's really asking. Now that for him was coupled with financial success and and notoriety and fame and everything else. Maybe it won't be, but there is a deeper component to this that he's trying to get across to us. And so this is important for us to try to figure out if there is a way for us to reconcile wild at heart with Ecclesiastes. Because once again, it's always a temptation to make an either-or choice. But it's not either-or. It's always both-and. If we can take what seems to be extremes and bring them into a balanced middle, this is something that we can work with. This is something that we can do. I was talking to a young man. He's he's approaching 40 in his late 30s. And he's at a place in his life where he's kind of at a crossroads. He's at a place in his life where he's got to make some choices. And his life has kind of gotten to a place where it's sort of a do-over, you know? He doesn't have, he's not connected to uh, you know, a family or a woman at this point. He doesn't have children. And he's in a place where he could decide to do anything. And he was coming to me to just talk about that. He said he has a hankering to go to the Holy Land. He wants to see the Holy Land. He was talking about going to Africa and doing missionary work. Something big, you know, something where it just completely broke the mold of everything that he was going to do. He said he really wanted to find out God's will for his life and to follow it to the best of his ability. And so he was looking at me and said, what should I do? (laughs) Oh my gosh. No pressure, yeah. I told him, you know, all things being equal, go. I mean, why wouldn't you? If you haven't gone to these places, if you haven't experienced these things, and this is a point in your life where your parameters are pretty much wide open, why wouldn't you? Go, but know the reason that you're going. Know the reason that you're going. Because why are you going? Why is this desire here? I said, you know, there's a lot of risk going to Africa. Are you afraid of that? No, I'm not afraid of risk. I'm not afraid of dying. I said, is the reason that you're not afraid of dying because you're more afraid of living? (laughs) You know, and he had to think about that for a while and his head started to go up and down. You know, there's difficulty here. There's things in his life that are unsettled here. 
In making these sorts of choices and trying to determine God's will, we need to make sure that we're not running from something, but actually running to something, to the next place in our life, to the next growth place in our life, and not just fleeing unfinished business. And when it comes to God's will, trying to figure out God's will in our life, that's such a sticky wicket. And I know many of you have heard my rant before between the how and the what. But really, God's will is universal for every single one of us. It is that oneness. It is that unity. It is that way of living life in relationship. How we live is right at the center of God's will. And it's no mystery. We don't have to figure it out. It's being screamed from every page of Scripture and it's written into the universe, into the fabric of our daily lives. The what is what you get to choose. You decide. But what I was telling this young man is, then follow your bliss. You want to go to the Holy Land? And you can do that. You've got the money for it. You've got the time that you can spend for it. Then go. And from there, if you want to go to Africa, go. Do it responsibly. Don't just show up in Nairobi or something on a street corner. you know. And we talked about who he could contact with and, and connect. But the point is, do those things. Because in the doing... You will shine the brightest if you're doing what you love doing. What makes you come alive? But we need to know why we're doing the things that we purport to do. The things that are pulling us can be so sneaky. Trying to disentangle our fears from our hopes and desires, God's will from the voice that speaks to us in our head. But it's so important to do. Where is your bliss? What makes you feel like you're coming alive? That's great. But it also is accomplishment. Is God's will really a trip? Is it a cause? Is it a ministry? Is it a marriage? Is it a celibate life? We paste God's will on all of those things. But is it really? Are those choices that we make? And God's will is something deeper. Why are we here? It's what it comes back to. Are we here to go to Africa? Are we here to to be right here in South County and continue to live our lives as we do, but with more aliveness, with more presence, with more immersion? We can follow God's will just as easily here in this room as we can anywhere else on earth. These are all the distinctions that we need to make. Why are we here? What is this? I want to get back to Ecclesiastes. What does Solomon say is the reason why we're here? And that key verse, the key question that he asks is back at verse 3. When he says, what do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? That's the key question. That's the topic sentence of the entire book of Ecclesiastes. What does it profit? And in 8 out of 12 chapters, he gives us the answer over and over and over again. And in this second section here, I've just listed a few of them. Not all of them. I, couldn't, I didn't have room for them all. And they get kind of repetitious because he's saying basically the same thing. Look what he says at chapter 2, verse 24. There is nothing better for a man than taking meat and drink and having delight in his work. This again I saw was from the hand of God. Who may, take, who may take food or have pleasure without him? And again, f- forgive the fact that this is so patriarchal. It's all 
male pronouns here because it applies to all of us. There's nothing better for a man than to take meat and drink and having delight in his work. This again I saw was from the hand of God. Who may take food or have pleasure without him? In chapter 3, I am certain that there is nothing better for a man than to be glad and to do good while life is in him. And for every man to take food and drink and have joy in all his work is a reward from God. At verse 22, So I saw that there is nothing better than for a man to have joy in his work, because that is his reward. Who will make him see what will come after him? Chapter 5, This is what I have seen. It is good and fair for a man to take meat and drink and to have joy in all his work under the sun all the days of his life which God has given him. That is his reward. Chapter 9. For him who is joined to all the living, there is hope. A living dog is better than a dead lion. (laughs) But I love that one at chapter 9-4. For him who is joined to all the living, who sees that connection, who sees that unity in all things, that is why we're here. At verse 7. Come, take your bread with joy and your wine with a glad heart. God has taken pleasure in your works. Have joy with the woman of your love all the days of your foolish life, which he gives you under the sun. I love that line. Have joy with the woman or the man of your love all the days of your foolish life. It's a foolish life. Paul said something similar, didn't he? You know? He's a fool. But that's okay. In this context... All the days of your foolish life which he gives you under the sun, because that is your part in life and in your work which you do under the sun. Whatever comes to your hand, do with all your power. Immerse yourself in this work. See where he's going with this? He has tried everything the pleasure, the great works, the wisdom, the accumulation, everything. And at the end of it all, he says, There is nothing better than to just sit down and have a great meal with people you feel comfortable with. That's it. Enjoy your food. Enjoy your drink. Do your work with all your might. Take joy in your work. Do the work that makes you come alive as much as you can. But whatever work you need to do, do it with that kind of immersion, that kind of total abandonment. Because in that moment, you'll know why you're here. Because nothing that you can think of and nothing that you can project is ever going to give you that sense of fulfillment? Is ever going to give you a sense of meaning and purpose in life? It's right here. It's within this generation. And maybe nobody ever remembers beyond two generations that we were all here. Does that matter? Does that really matter? If our meaning and purpose is all right here and right now, God knows. God will always know. And the accomplishments and the things we do and the things we build, they don't survive death with us anyway. Came into this life naked, we go out of this life naked. We don't take anything with us except what we learned here about the unity and the oneness and the fact that everything is contained within a meal with a loving family, a loving group. If we learn that as we move on, now we can be rulers and reigners with him who can help those who haven't maybe gotten that message across to themselves. This is where he's going. And then finally at the end, last chapter, verse 12, this is the last word, he says. 
All has been said. Have fear of God and keep his laws because this is right for every man. God will be the judge of every work with every secret thing, good or evil. He brings us back. And this fear of the Lord business, difficult again for us to process, but Brennan Manning had a perfect way of putting it in his book, Ruthless Trust. He said, fear of the Lord with silent reverence, radical amazement, and affectionate awe. I just love that. Silent reverence, radical amazement, and affectionate awe. That's fear of the Lord. So the last word is, live your life like that. Live your life in such a way that you get so excited when Bob Dylan wins the Nobel Prize that you got to text all your friends and you got to take pictures of the New York Times or the LA Times and send them on in your messages. You know, that's the way of living life that he's talking about here. You know, silent reverence, radical amazement. How could this happen? Isn't that great? You know, this is it. This is where it comes down to. It's the little things. It's the things that we skip right over like Nebraska. It's flyover country on the way to New York, you know? It's just, so we live our whole lives like that at 30,000 feet, always aiming for the coasts, never really realizing this is where we live. This is where all the meaning and purpose that will ever be is. Can we just land? Can we just enjoy what is right here and right now? Sitting here listening to this fountain, can I just enjoy that? Or do I have to worry about how many people are in this room or what the tithe basket contains? Where is my head? Where is all of our heads? This is what we're talking about here. And when it comes down to it, see, there's nothing wrong with accomplishment. Accomplishment is what we do here. There's nothing wrong with ambition. There's nothing wrong with excellence and working hard to be the best at what you do. But why are you doing what you do? Because what we come down to at the end of things is to realize that this life is an interior journey, not an exterior journey. Everything that has meaning and purpose for us is within. Jesus said so. The kingdom isn't out there to be found by exploration, by, by objectively seeing, look, here it is or there it is. It's entos. It's within. It's among. It's, it's all in this place all in this generation, all in this moment. And if you won't find it here, then you can't find it anywhere else. This is where it all comes down to. But the exterior journey is part of this as well, and you can't separate the two as long as we're here. But here's the kicker. The interior journey needs to feed the exterior journey, or the exterior journey is at best irrelevant and at worst, a distraction or an obsession that takes you off track completely. And I've lived decades in that place, and I'm trying really hard not to do that anymore, to let the interior journey inform, infuse, and move me into the exterior journey so that I know why I do what I do. And this doesn't mean that we won't still work hard. It doesn't mean that people won't look at us and still say, you're a workaholic. But you will know the difference inside. You will know that the tail is not wagging the dog all the time, at least anymore. That there's a reason that you do what you do and that you are connected in this way. That it's all here, all right now, this day, this moment, this generation. 
I wanted to close by reading you a couple paragraphs. A friend of mine who lives in England is just having a really tough time. He's one of the most spiritual guys I know, but he's been thrown through a loop. Most recently, his mother died, and he was caring for her. He's got financial troubles. He's got everything under the sun going sideways on him. And uh, he wrote me a long email. And when I replied to him, I guess all this stuff was still germinating in my head because this is what I wrote. Hang in, my friend. I can hear the fatigue and fatalism creeping in. Happens to all of us. But with all the loss you've gone through, don't give up. You have so much to give with all you have been through and all you've studied and know of our God. Keep giving it away. Find the joy again in the smallest things. I'm realizing that this is really all we have, no matter who or what we are or where we are. Just the little things. No matter how much we've attained or not attained, in the end, when we turn out the lights, it's just the little things. Either we see God in them or we don't. Kingdom or not kingdom. I've spent so much time focusing on the wrong things. Or better, focusing on things for the wrong reasons. Ultimately, I don't think it matters what we do. I don't think God cares what we do. It doesn't survive with us anyway. But God cares deeply how we do what we do, the manner, the love with which we do whatever we choose to do. As I enter the last phase of my life, the things unaccomplished had begun to weigh on me, sense of inadequacy, missed opportunity or mission. Depression was hitting more often, pressure to turn things around, Some may look at me and wish they had a platform like mine to work within, and I can do the same looking at someone else. But none of that matters. I know this, but I still fight it as well. Emotionally, the fear is still there, but at lower levels. Now I just keep reminding myself of what Jesus was really trying to tell us. This moment, this detail, this person I'm with is the most important bit in the universe. The rest doesn't even exist until I get there. Who will remember any of us past a generation? And if they remember us through writing or buildings or whatever, they're not really remembering us. They're remembering products we produced. And that's not the same thing. Everything we are and we're created to be is momentary, like music. It vibrates in the air for a few moments and then is gone. If we can focus on the vibrations right now, always now, it changes us. I'm slowly changing, getting more comfortable with my circumstances, realizing my accomplishments or lack don't define me at all, especially in the eyes of those who love most, love me most, and the God who loves me all. You know, We won't ultimately find meaning, know why we're here from our accomplishments. It's not going to happen. But if we learn to value the connection, if we learn to value the oneness in each tiny detail of our lives, we're going to find meaning in everything that we do. And we're going to know why we're here. Let's pray. Father, it's like you knew how to make life ultimately interesting, never boring, always full of surprises. 
It's like you set it up in such a way that it requires everything that we've got, every bit of attention, every bit of effort, and that we won't be satisfied or feeling fulfilled as a person unless we are giving everything to the pursuit of this life as you've laid it out for us. It's just perfect. Help us to stop resisting giving everything to this life. Leaving no stone unturned. Not listening to our fears more than we listen to what really makes us come alive. Help us to make choices that move us into disturbing places, disorienting places, so that we know that we're growing. But always with our eyes fastened to the sides, to the people who are traveling with us, so we never lose touch of why we're really here. Thank you for being so thoughtful in the way that you gave us life and set all this up so that we can learn exactly what we need to learn to be closer to you and to each other. We just are amazed, Lord. We're amazed at your wisdom. We're amazed at your generosity. We're amazed at your faithfulness. Help us to be more like that with each day. Thank you for loving us. We can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's all stand.